So some of the books in the Bible are named after the authors who wrote them or minor characters in the story and not after the person who features most prominently in the stories. A few examples. The books of First and Second Samuel are all about King David, but they're not called David. Samuel's there, but he plays more of a minor role in the story. There's also no book of the Bible named after our good buddy Zerubbabel. Still a fun name to say out loud. But you have to look for his story in the first half of the book of Ezra. And the best example of this is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not about Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. They're all about Jesus. This happens a lot in the Bible. Well, in the book of Ruth, we learn a lot about a central character named Naomi. And some scholars even think that Naomi is the main character of the book of Ruth. And there's, there's good evidence to make a case in this direction. Naomi is the Israelite, and she's the one who moves to Moab, and Ruth is the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, that comes back with her. The story is told from Naomi's perspective, for, for the most part. And also, Naomi's kind of the brains of the operation. She's the one who encourages Ruth to stay in Boaz's field and advises her on how to get his attention as a potential husband. So you could say the story of Ruth, the book of Ruth, is just as much about Naomi as it is about Ruth. But actually, if you start reading the story of Ruth, you might expect it to be about a guy named Elimelech. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Mahalan and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. So, yeah, don't get too attached to Elimelech. He dies in the first act. Kind of like Mufasa in The Lion King or Vito Corleone in The Godfather. The person who seems like they might be the main character of the story gets killed off pretty quickly. But notice the way that this story is told. It's not Elimelech's wife Naomi was left with two sons. It's Naomi's husband Elimelech died and she was left with two sons. The action is told from her perspective. But as we're talking about the sons, don't get too attached to those guys either. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So this is a surprising turn in the story, especially considering that it comes from a patriarchal culture. The story suddenly shifts from being about a man starting a new life during the time of a famine to being about a woman whose life just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. In order to understand Naomi's actions and even her sour attitude in Ruth chapter one, we need to remind ourselves of just how much Naomi has lost up to this point in her life. She lost her home. The story begins with her having to leave her home and her land and her people because there's a famine. She and her husband have to move to Moab, a place where they were the ones who were the foreigners. They were the outsiders. And it was also a place where people practice human sacrifice, even child sacrifice to appease their God, whose name was Shamash. I've personally never been in a situation where I've had to choose between starving to death or raising my family in a bloodthirsty pagan culture. 
but that's exactly where Naomi's story starts. She's an outsider driven from home. Next, she experiences the loss of the kinds of daughters-in-law that she would have been hoping for. She had two sons, but now that they live in Moab, the best wives that Naomi can hope to find for her sons are not going to be Israelite women. And since they're the ones who are the outsiders in Moab, her sons would not have been prime candidates to receive a dowry from a bride's family. So Ruth and Orpah were most likely second or third string choices, on top of the fact that they were from Moab. Then Naomi loses her husband. Elimelech dies. This is a major blow to her financial and social security. But she still has two sons, so that's good for now. But then she loses the possibility of grandchildren. Apparently, Ruth and Orpah aren't able to produce children, which would have been a major source of shame in their culture, as well as a practical nightmare, since the future of a family and being taken care of in your old age was dependent on producing male heirs, which they were now not able to do. And then finally, Naomi loses her two sons, Malon and Killian die. The last things of value in her hard life are now gone too. Some people have called the story of Ruth a Cinderella story. It's a poor young maiden who's rescued from her plight by a kind and wealthy gentleman. But the story of Naomi is less of a Cinderella story and more of a Job story. As one author observes, Naomi even out-Job's Job. She says, yes, both of them were God's people who were stricken with a painful, crippling loss. But Job was one, not an immigrant, and two, not a woman. Naomi had it worse. What's she supposed to do now? Well, she makes a decision. She's going to head back to Bethlehem, and she's going to invite her daughters-in-law to make the sensible decision to leave her alone, to not go back with her. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each one of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them both goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could come become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and they gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand was turned against me. May this, at this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and said goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. So Orpah makes the smart move to go back to her mother's house where there's more support, there's more options for her, better chance that she's going to have a good future. But Ruth refuses to go back. I mentioned before that there was this 
probability that uh, Ruth and Orpah were second or third string wives that Naomi was able to manage to get for her sons. But now Ruth is making it absolutely clear to Naomi which of the two wives was the real dum-dum. Naomi tries to help Ruth see what a bad decision it would be for her to stay with Naomi. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. Whenever an immigrant leaves their home and sets out for a new place, it's done in the hopes of gaining a better life. Some people leave their family so that they can earn more money in another land and, and send it back home to support the family. Some leave where they're from because of political unrest or danger, uh, the danger of being hurt or being killed. But whether the immigrating is done legally or illegally, the hope is always that the move will somehow result in a better life. But when Ruth leaves Moab and chooses to live with Naomi, she is choosing a worse life. There's less security with Naomi, fewer options, more of a chance of ending up uncared for or harmed or dead. But Naomi can't talk her out of it. Why is Ruth doing this? Why is Ruth choosing pain? Maybe she's tired of worshiping Shamash and wants to live in a land that worships and honors Yahweh. Maybe. Maybe she truly loves Naomi or at least feels sorry for her and, and wants to look out for her and do something good. Whatever the reason, on the road between Moab and Judah, she makes a sacrificial lifelong pledge to Naomi. And this is where the music swells and it's this dramatic moment. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And Naomi essentially tells her, whatever, it's your funeral. The text doesn't say that Ruth had convinced Naomi to let her come along. It doesn't say that Naomi appreciated it either. It says, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Basically, she just gave up. Ruth's commitment to her didn't seem to comfort or cheer her up at all. So listen to what she says when she gets back to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune unto me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So with Ruth standing right next to her, Naomi says, now I have nothing. I left full and now I'm back empty. 
Don't even call me Pleasant anymore. That's not a good name for me. From now on, you can just call me Eeyore because that's all you're about you're going to get from me. That's all I can do. And that's the end of chapter one. Naomi has been given a bad rap within the story of Ruth for her grumpiness. It's sometimes even interpreted as faithlessness. But I think it's important to acknowledge that this woman has been through a lot. She's been mourning loss after loss for years, and she is still in the grieving process. You don't go to someone's funeral or wake and say, yeah, yeah, I know your dearest loved one is dead, but hey, look at all this fruit salad. You should be happy. You should be grateful. This is good fruit salad. Come on, cheer up, why don't you? We sometimes jump too quickly to make people look on the bright side without leaving room for mourning, lamenting, and grief, which are healthy and biblical emotional expressions during times of loss. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross identified five common stages of grief. You might have heard of these. There's denial, anger, bargaining, then depression, and finally, acceptance. But many scholars and mental health professionals say that these five stages are an oversimplification of the grief process. One critic of the five stages says, the evidence that we do have points to grief as unpredictable, wild, and undomesticated in its form and intensity. It breaks like a storm over us and then calms, seemingly without reason. And Tom Long says, the larger notion that grief moves through some kind of staged process toward resolution probably owes more of a debt to American optimism than to religious hope. In other words, let's hurry this along because that, uh, we gotta get to that acceptance stage because your sadness is really starting to bum everyone out. But if we truly believe Jesus, when he says, blessed are those who mourn, and also the persecuted, and also the poor, then we should not be offended by someone's grief or deny them the nearness of God during their suffering. You might hear this and say, yeah, but uh, what about Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 4, when he says we shouldn't grieve like those who have no hope when someone dies? That's still true. Sure, there, there is hope beyond death in Christ, but that doesn't mean that God's people don't grieve at all. If you know the story of Ruth, then you know that something very good is coming. But we have to acknowledge Naomi doesn't know that in chapter one. All she feels now is loss. And maybe that's all that we should expect her to feel at this point. Maybe we should be like Ruth. And even when our presence and our efforts to comfort go unappreciated, just simply say, I'm with you. Naomi has no choice but to live through the pain that she's experiencing. Ruth, as we saw, chose the painful path of being attached to Naomi. So when we encounter pain, either in our own life or in the life of someone else, how will we choose to respond? Will we say, cheer up, have some fruit salad? Or will we say, I'm with you? I think that hurrying people to Kubler-Ross's acceptance stage puts a lot of faith in our own abilities to cheer up, to solve our problems, other people's problems. But giving people space and permission to grieve leaves room for God's presence to be the agent that's at work, to bring comfort and healing. Ruth saying to Naomi, I'm with you, echoes God's I'm with you, that he has spoken throughout history to his children in times of suffering. The Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, 
for you are with me. And according to the Gospel of Matthew, which, by the way, uh, isn't about a guy named Matthew, it's about Jesus, the last words of Jesus before he took his place at the right hand of God, after God raised him up from the dead, were these, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. But we know that before the resurrection, there was a cross. Before Easter Sunday, there was Good Friday. And the grief and the confusion of the Saturday that was in between those two days. And that's where Naomi lives, in that in-between. And that's where many of us are living, or have lived, in the in-between. And in the in-between, there are genuine expressions of hurt, loss, grief, and pain that need to be acknowledged. Like I said, the good news part of Ruth and Naomi's story is coming. It's, it's, in fact, it's right around the corner. Just like the resurrection was right around the corner on that in-between Saturday. But for us and for Naomi, we don't get that part of the story until next week. So, I want to encourage you this week to dwell with Naomi in the in-between. Try to identify with her. Grieve with her. Mourn with her. Weep with her, even. If you've experienced any kind of loss of your own, then this won't be hard to do. You will be able to relate to Naomi. And if there's a Naomi in your life, pray for them this week. and Find some way to let them know that you are with them. I also want to encourage you to spend some time this week praying psalms of lament. I'm even going to post different lament psalms uh, from the scriptures each day on our website, trivalleychurch.org, and also on our Facebook page, so you should be able to find those pretty easily. Uh, the Psalms were Israel's songbook, but they were also Israel's prayer book. So I encourage you to pray these prayers that cry out to God for change, for help. But they also express trust that God is present and that God can and will act in our lives. Now you may hear this and you may be thinking, Jacob, I don't want to do that. I'm having a great week. That stuff's just going to bum me out. Can we Kubler-Ross this thing already? Two things in response to that. One... It's always good to learn the language of lament. Even if you can't personally relate to expressions of grief and pain right now, it's good practice for a future time when you will. And the second thing is, think of all the times when the Naomi's of our church still came and worshiped with us, still expressed joy and celebration in worship, even while they themselves were grieving. We can extend them the courtesy of bending the other direction. That's what we do for one another in the body of Christ. Our journey with the Lord is a mixture of grief and hope, joy and pain, trust and doubt, ups and downs, but hopefully all of these things are drawing us closer and closer to Christ. And so now, as we wrap up today, I'm going to share Psalms 13 with you now. And while this psalm is playing, I want you to write down your own lament psalm that starts with, How long, O Lord? How long must I endure this? How long until things change? How long will you keep me waiting, Lord? And I want to encourage you to share these with someone. Share it with someone that you're close to. You can even email them into the church office and we'll send these out Monday with our, our normal prayer request list that goes out each week. And then your lament prayer will be joined in with the voices of the rest of the congregation. We'll lift them up before God together. This is what we're called to do. This is what Israel did. A lot of these laments that we read in the Psalms are communal laments. It's the body together lifting up their concerns and their, their, their frustrations and their angers before the Lord. And we do this because we believe that God cares. We believe that God is listening. So we lift up our concerns before the throne of the God that we know is with us. So I want to encourage you to participate in that now.